Piggybacking off our last episode where we looked into some of history's greatest military blunders, today we're exploring some of the myths surrounding Spartan culture. That's right, you know, the shirtless Greek warriors trained from birth to grow into fearsome warriors with no fear of death. The cultural zeitgeist would have us believe that Spartans were part of a military-based culture that churned out soldiers like the Borg from Star Trek. Mindless units instructed to fight born out of a vat of discipline and rigidity. But when it comes to the hyper-curated depictions of these swole gents, I think it's time to separate fact from fiction. Today we are looking at some of the uh, long-standing myths about the Spartan culture on another episode of The Remedial Scholar. That's ancient history. I feel I was denied critical need-to-know information. Belongs in a museum, Stop skipping your remedial class. Welcome, everyone. I hope your holidays are fantastic so far, if you still have any left, and that the ones that you had were excellent. If you find yourself in a car, driving long distances to find your way back home, hopefully this episode will make that drive a little shorter, and you learn some fun things along the way. Before we get too far along, as... You know, as always, I have a few housekeeping things to discuss. First and foremost, don't forget to share us wherever possible. Also, thank you for the continued ratings and reviews on all platforms. And lastly, if you enjoy the show, uh, would like me to discuss something de- uh, different, something that you find particularly interesting from history, email me, remedialscholar at gmail.com. Give me topic suggestions, and all the links are going to be in the description uh, wherever you're intaking this. So check that. This links to the merch as well as the social media pages and all those interesting things. So that's it. Quick, quick little thing. <laughs> Let's get into the actual topic itself. Ancient Greece, the birthplace of democracy, known for city-states like Athens, Corinth, Thebes, where public debates raged in dedicated spaces called agoras. Ancient pantheons of gods were worshipped in temples that dotted the fertile countryside and hillsides of the polis. Polis meaning. Uh, cities, by the way. Greek civilization reached its zenith in the northeastern part of the Mediterranean Sea, composed of city-states largely defined by geography. Smart. Greek <laughs> Greek civilization was characterized uh, by infighting and expansion, whereas city-states such as Athens, synonymous with producing an array of philosophers and politicians, places like Sparta have been known for producing ranks of skilled soldiers born out of a nation hell-bent on discipline. So, without further ado, let's get into a bit of Greek history to set the scene. Talk a bit about the origins of Sparta and do a little bit of debunking when it comes to the long-standing beliefs about Spartan culture. These beliefs are largely upheld by uh, works of fiction, movies like Zack Snyder's 300, which glorified the exploits of the Battle of Thermopylae by the Spartans against the Persians, as well as a recent co-opting of the uh, Spartan ethos by some elements of Americana. Now, I'm going to talk about it a little bit later, but I want to I go on the record to say that the movie 300 did not inspire me to do this episode. I know that that's based on a comic book, so I don't think that that movie, being as historically inaccurate as it is, <laughs> deserves any kind of like wrongdoing because it is a work of fiction based on a different work of fiction. And I, I kind of get annoyed. I watch a lot of top 10 lists on YouTube and a lot of the times they'll do historically inaccurate movies. And they'll talk about 300. Like, yeah, the movie based on a comic book, of course it's historically inaccurate. It's based on a comic book. Um, and I'll talk about that movie specifically when, when I get to that. But I just wanted to get in front of that so people aren't going, Oh, guy watched 300 one time. Now hates the Spartans. What's up with that? <laughs> Spartans came to be known culturally as the representation of warrior culture. But what was the origin of this mighty city-state? To put things into context, let's backtrack to a time of analogous of what would be the real-life timeline of the Trojan War. Whether or not the legendary Trojan War was indeed real is still a matter of historical debate. Either way, the storied 10-year debacle that supposedly resulted from the taking of Helen of Sparta by Trojan Prince Paris has been referenced in many works of Greek literature, but most notably Homer's Iliad and the Odyssey. Helen, whose beauty launched a thousand ships, was married to King Menelaus of Sparta before being whisked away by Paris of Troy, who, despite it being a movie, I will always imagine him as Orlando Bloom. And maybe that movie's historically inaccurate too. But who who wouldn't be whisked away by Orlando Bloom, you know what I mean? Anyway, so <laughs> the subsequent conflict supposedly ended in the sacking and burning of the coastal city of Troy, ushered in a period of social and economic collapse in ancient Greece that occurred between uh, or in the 12th century BCE, specifically 
between 1200 and 1150. During this time, the great Mycenaean civilization in Greece, the first distinctly Greek civilization known for its palatial economy, art, and urban organizations and writing systems ceased to be. This period known as the Late Bronze Age collapsed and is more or less the Greek Dark Ages. This time is characterized by a shift from a palace economy or redistribution economy to a system of small, isolated village cultures delineated by their geographic enclaves. In a palace economy, the uh, bulk of the wealth of the nation is filtered through a central body then trickles back out to the populace. In the peninsular, the southern Peloponnese region of Greece, nestled by the Tigetos mountain range in the fertile valley bordering the Eurotas River, a new Sparta was born from the ashes some 200 years after the collapse of the Mycenaean civilization. It is said that the original polis was uh, made up of four villages located in this plain. Now, geography played a crucial role in Sparta's unfettered growth and the unique inclinations of its societal structure. Being located between the southeastern end of the Peloponnese provided Sparta with natural defenses. The rugged mountain range that flanked the fledgling city-state provided both isolation and protection. What's more, this geography informed cultural distaste for quote-unquote the other. Strangers, travelers, foreigners were all mistrusted by Spartans who reveled in secrecy and maintained Spartan hierarchy and elitism as the backbone of their egalitarian society. And there'll be more on that later because <laughs> it's it's an egalitarian to them but anyway because of their relatively safe position back home spartans focused their might on military campaigns and dominance outside of their territory instead of in defense in other words not having to allocate resources and constant defense meant that they could be on the offensive oh and they also had slaves. Known in ancient texts as Lacedaemon, by the late 8th century BCE, the city-state of Sparta was expanding greatly by subjugating neighboring peoples from regions of Messenia and Lesonia. These folks were more or less seen as second-tier citizens of the Spartan polis, annexed people that were called Periakoi, which translates roughly to those dwelling around or nearby. The Periakoi, unlike first-tier Spartan citizens, would be in charge of some of the chore, albeit mundane, elements of functioning Spartan society, such as commerce, business, crafts, and manufacturing. These tasks, higher-ranking Spartan citizens thought of as beneath them in a sense. This middle class paid taxes and could serve in the army, often as an obligation as opposed to an honor, which, you know, would bolster the ranks. The Periakoi were otherwise excluded from political life, so you can fight in the wars, but you can't, uh, can't decide which wars we go to. Spartan society was characterized by distinct social classes. Below the Periakoi was another subjugated class as the Helots. The Helots also assimilated by force from nearby regions, but having the distinction of having resisted, were bound to Spartan citizens, undertook the most basic uh, minutia of societal functioning, such as forced agricultural labor. They were, in essence, state slaves. Sometimes helots were allowed to keep portions of the produce that they cultivated for themselves. In time of acute military necessity or expansion, helots could be conscripted to serve. Above the Periakoi and helots were the Spartan citizens, of course, having relegated the task required for the upkeep of structured society citizens were able to focus on what they saw as their rightful way of existence military training athletics sport hunting and politics now this debunks one of these uh, so-called values of spartan society namely the idea of equality suffice to say equality was a concept that was definitely not upheld across the board sparta was built on the back of slave labor this is a distinct part of its societal makeup the work the words egalitarian and Sparta are often said in the same breath, but the reality is that freedom was reserved for just the elite. Not all Spartan men were soldiers. In fact, only the best warriors were selected to be part of the Spartan army, thus gaining full citizenship. Spartans devoted a lot of importance to their military careers, and for citizens, this path started early. By the age of seven, young boys were sent to what amounts to a military academy called the Agoji, meaning to lead. This was a place where boys learned to live communally in order to prepare themselves for military lives. This fate was not reserved for all men, however. For instance, in the movie 300, King Leonidas of Sparta is portrayed as being forced to participate in this. However, firstborn sons were exempt from the program. As the future king, Leonidas would not have been tossed in with common folk either. And if you have seen this movie, this is 
where he's like training and fighting with like the regular people. In the state-sponsored education system, young men were divvied into what ultimately corresponded to three categories, young children, adolescents, and young adults. Another aspect of the agoji was uh, the fact that young boys were encouraged as part of their initiation to steal food without being caught. They were reportedly underfed to stimulate the need to steal. If they were caught, they would be beaten. The idea here was to encourage the development of stealth and resourcefulness, which is strange, but also kind of not surprising. <laughs> this kind of logic inspired fascination even by ancient authors of the time. The goal of the Agoji was, besides character building, to physically acclimate the boys within the harshness of war. Get them, I guess, accustomed to it. Cultural depictions of this truly portray it as a synonymous to a military academy. However, it's more like a place where men of the elite families learn to live communally, where this tradition would be extended into part of their adult lives. Uh, they would live away from their families as you know as they would if they were campaigning inside sparta's walls familial life would see a nucleus structure differently as well so let's get into that there was an aspect of spartan life that strived for the idea of communality or exemplified equality as, at least for spartan citizens anyway for example the land surrounding sparta was divided up into equal plots with many of them allocated to Spartan citizens. Family units were structured a little bit differently. Men were not allowed to live with their families for a certain period of time. Instead, they enjoying the company of other men in their communal mess halls. Source material is scant and largely unfounded, but there is a, it is largely believed that women were relatively freer in Sparta than in other city-states in Greece. However, one can infer that since the men were absent, whether it was due to war or some other weird social obligation, that women were forced to compensate with the full scope of domestic and family life, including managing the property. So you can start to see here how Spartan society is organized already at its core to favor military existence above all else, and it already cultivates a certain allure. Another fascinating aspect of Spartan culture lies in its governance. The fact is, Sparta was ruled by two kings. This was meant as a precaution. When one king would head to a military campaign, the other would stay and rule the city. In addition to a double monarchy, a council of five elected elf, uh, a council of five elected elders called the ephors, uh, <laughs> supplemented the ruling kings. Uh, I, <laughs> I chuckle because it's pronounced. I don't know how it's actually pronounced, but it's spelled E P H O R S, and so I just naturally pronounce. It E4s, it could be Fers, but for me, E4, <laughs> that was like that was the uh, the ranking that I achieved when I was in the military, and that is a if you don't know about it, E4s are kind of like like the letter E dash four for the confusion is like a equate it to a very junior managerial level thing, like a manager in training or something like that, where you get some responsibility but not a lot. <laughs> and there's yeah there's just a lot of um inside jokes and that, that, that's why i made it i don't, probably don't need to explain it but anyway it just made me think of that so if you're like why did you just laugh after that it's not it's not because the word is that funny but i'm just in my own head sorry <laughs> anyway that anyway so like i said council of five elected el elders called the e4s or f4s efferit or efferit offered counsel they also served as judicial, religious, and legislative functions and facilitated foreign affairs. And it goes without saying that the council was composed of men from the noblest of families and effectively making Sparta a double monarchy and oligarchy. <laughs> so, um, and there's also the number of elders ranges depending on some sources so just also <laughs> don't focus too much on that as it were politics and military life were the watermarks of aristocracy in spartan culture the highest aristocratic class of men also called spartiates uh, spent most of their t uh, their life in the military barracks away from the nuclear family units their lands were left to be tilled by slaves and managed by their wives when you know pretty much all of the time they practiced the art of war an honor bestowed upon them as a reflection of their privilege like hey you're a pretty fancy man you get to play <laughs> you get to play war all the time you just get to live in the barrack and you can you can afford to because you got a wife who's going to take care of your stuff and also you have slaves to keep your land going so you can just do whatever you want like you don't have to go home really <laughs> anyway so what made Sparta such a reputable force, militarily speaking? Let's untangle how cultural notions of Spartan military prowess spiraled out of control and distinguish that fact from fiction in the process. 
The colloquial term for citizen soldiers in ancient Greece culture is hoplite. This comes from the Greek word hopla, meaning equipment. The word hoplite thus translates uh, loosely to a fully equipped man. And this is quite funny, given the fact that Spartans are often depicted in popular culture as fighting battles in scanty outfits, you know, shirtless, 16-pack abs, big pecs, no armor, because <laughs> why would you need that? It often makes me think of, like, in video games, like fantasy-style video games, there's the running joke that, you know, women armor in, in these video games, like, what is it protecting? Because usually it's very, very scanty and, uh... <laughs> It shows a lot. It's quite revealing. And, like, dude, the male fantasy just wants no protection for women. And then you look at, like, Zack Snyder's 300. Like, male fantasy doesn't want protection for men either, obviously. <laughs> so, um, anyway, hoplites are foot soldiers who fight in a close formation called a phalanx or phalanx. I've always pronounced it phalanx, but I, I recognize that my small town Nebraska pronunciation is probably not accurate, and I see a lot of people online calling it phalanx, so that's probably how it's actually pronounced. <laughs> and you might see the phalanx in a couple of different things. Um, it's honestly, it is depicted in a lot of different ways. If you've ever watched the movie Troy, um, the scene where Brad Pitt and crew also shout out to Troy they actually wore armor in that movie a lot I mean granted Brad Pitt was half naked for the other half but like <laughs> the fighting scenes he was wearing armor anyway the scene where uh Brad Pitt and crew first gets to the beaches of Troy jumps out of the boat the Trojan archers are already lining up the beaches shooting arrows then they they institute a, a phalanx they they get their their shields up and everything and it start it protects them it performs this big like turtle shell a lot of these depictions however are kind of kind of more along the lines of what the romans would actually do so you know the phalanx is obviously not um unique to spartans especially since i just gave you an example of a group of people who because i don't even remember what brad pitt's like what achilles's people were in troy but they weren't spartans because that was that one guy and anyway um <laughs> so it's not a uniquely spartan thing also if you ever watched the movie <laughs> if you've ever found a week to dedicate the time to watch the alexander movie <laughs> where colin farrell plays alexander they also utilize um, some phalanx strategies in that but what is a phalanx it's a rectangular mass formation hoplites would stand tightly packed side by side with their first few rows projecting their spears over the ranks of their shields ahead of them <laughs> like you know this, this giant hedgehog composed of military men shield spears and all this but here's the thing i mentioned the romans um depiction because they did a thing called the testudo also in 300 they do have a phalanx where they have the shields and leonidas is explaining you know your your shield has to cover um because they have the shin armor right so you cover from the knee up and shoulder below because they have helm and then you lock like your close close quarter with the guy next to you and then also you have people behind you with their shield or with their spears draped over if Spartan military superiority is to be believed, it would stand to reason that the phalanx and hoplite regalia is distinctly Spartan. However, as we said earlier, this is not the case. Hoplite regalia and phalanx formation are not specific to Sparta, but was common fighting style of many Greek police. Um, yeah, and it, it, it's not like any one Greek thing. Like, they they intermingled so much that there's like, okay. <laughs> like, they all came from a very similar background. And then when, you know, the Bronze Age collapsed, they kind of split into their Greek city-state. And they kept those things. And then when they would trade, they would like, oh, that's a good idea. So, hoplites themselves were heavily armored. They used a uh, fighting spear called a dory, a backup sword called a... Siphus or copus and shields some kind uh, sometimes called aspis what's more hoplites were reasonable for uh, what's more hoplites were responsible for procuring their own equipment again reinforcing the notion that to be part of the army was actually a sign of higher status it's kind of expensive i mean greek armor authentic greek armor from this time is very expensive now pretty much priceless but back then you know it did cost a lot of money to have this made like like now if you wanted to have some metalsmith craft you a sword it's not gonna be cheap 
a good one's not going to be cheap you can get a stainless steel stamped out sword but it's going to break in battle in the same way like even if you translate it to modern military equipment like plate carriers guns it's all very expensive to procure that's why <laughs> that's why the government provides most of them <laughs> so anyway hoplites carried their armor the whole of it was sometimes called a panoply that was often emblazoned with family family sigils or crests that represented certain regions body armor sometimes could be made of textiles most likely for the lower class infantry and breastplates uh, could be made of like heavy materials such as bronze and this leads us to another bout of debunking in popular culture you know depictions of the spartan war machine would have these shirtless men bounding for the adversaries with nary a smidge of armor in sight of course this is complete lunacy and even even in the normal depictions of like there's still so many like bad depictions of it like even when they do give them chest plate like their arms are still out in the open and like sure you can make the argument that it was for mobility but like for the most part you would still have something like you would have like you would get a leather plate or some kind of thing to block that because you don't want your just raw arm out there but of course you do have in like movies video games uh spartan total warrior comes to mind where you do have like this chest plate this thick bronze chest plate that like locks you in and then you have that and maybe maybe you wear a helmet maybe you don't <laughs> but then you have you know other depictions where and not just 300 but other ones where they're like shirtless throwing spears whatever and that's that's nonsense aside from the uh, bronze cuirass uh spartan soldiers also sported shin coverings and a helmet a helmet depicted in popular culture is the iconic corinthian helmet which came to be in the city state of corinth of course often made of bronze the helmet covered the entire head and neck with uh, almond shaped slits for the eyes and a large slit for the mouth in stylized depictions it is often shown as having a winged tip this helmet type was not exclusively used by the spartans but most military men of all city states and that's why it's so popular is because that's the most like we found it most all over the place are like versions of it the idea that uh professional military men would be over skilled to the point of not needing armor of course simply just the result of colorful storytelling and not rooted in fact or logic but i feel like you are all pretty intelligent enough to have put that together you know but there's some people who just don't. There, There's people who just refuse to believe that. They're like, God, these guys are just so badass. And it's, there's so, the, it reminds me of like Viking berserkers where they're like, these guys, like there's so many myths around the, what they did and didn't wear. And you know, that like there's depictions of them fighting completely naked. And then there's depictions of them being like these over armored hulks that were just impossible to bring down because they had so many, so much armor. I don't know, <laughs> but like, I haven't done the research either one way, but it reminds me of that, where it's like, you have these two completely different things. Not for nothing, while I'm on the topic and slightly off topic, you know, Spartan's name was given to the Spartans in Halo, you know, and those guys are heavily armored tanks, not just good soldiers in that game series, but they are completely over armored they're heavily armored they're more armored than their human counterparts in that game they have energy shields they have all this extra stuff and it's like okay and then the idea of like living spartan like you have a spartan lifestyle and you have like the that means there's less stuff like it's more rudimentary it's very confusing anyway some researchers espouse the theory that the spartan phalanx uh diff was different from others in its cohesion in recounting the last seven years of the peloponnesian war his Historian Xenophon chronicles that the Spartan army was made of significantly more officers than the armies of other city-states. This implies that units with more command personnel were, in fact, more effective. According to uh, my source materials, Spartans had the ability, uh, distinct ability to move one victorious hoplite faction from one end of the battlefield onto the next. This ability was distinct from the documented and limited abilities of other armies, and maybe it was because that they had so many, like, officers directing the way. It can also be inferred that because of their communal style of living, that 
that was adopted from an early age. The men of Sparta were used to thinking as a unit. Their hoplite troops were in effect bonded in a way that was different from the other infantrymen in the other city-state. What's more, in popular culture, depictions of soldiers fighting single combat style on the battlefield strays very far from the actual fighting style that was distinct in hoplite culture. Sure, it is very badass, but it is untrue and essentially the opposite of what made Spartan military tactics def definite and successful. Also, if Spartans did adopt such fighting style in battles such as one waged at Thermopylae, they would have been mowed down in minutes as opposed to standing strong for days. The sheer weight of the equipment that a hoplite soldier wears would not be conducive to single fighting hand, uh, single hand combat style. And you know, it's, it's not just like I think 300 is the easiest depiction because it is straight up like the most popular depiction. But even then, like we have other like there's games, there's other movies. Uh, Assassin's Creed Odyssey takes us to ancient Greece and so much single-handed combat in that game. And I get it, it's an Assassin's Creed game, but come on, man! You like it? <laughs> let me do, let me do some phalanx operations. Let me, let me fight some guys, uh, like in a little bit of a more strategic way. Thankfully, Total War franchise has never let me down in that aspect. I can fight with all the phalanxes I want in that game. <laughs> Popular culture would have us believe that uh, Spartan men showed their worthiness by venturing off alone in the wilderness. Once again, <laughs> very little armor to prove that they are worth enough to be part of the fighting class. Coming back alive and unscathed was a mark of this worthiness. Again, in the movie 300, King Leonidas proves his worth by venturing off alone in the wilderness and killing a wolf coming back with its skin. In reality, it is documented that Spartan youths would prove their worth by stealthily killing off uh, something, but it was... <laughs> Not a wolf, but an unarmed helot. Much less brave, if you ask me. As for the idea of military worth being quantified by solo venture, this would be inherently against the central tenets of Spartan military tactics, namely the idea that individualism went on the back burner in favor of teamwork, as best exemplified by the phalanx formation and the early life of Spartan men as a part of the collective. However, it should be noted that because military might and physical health was glorified in Spartan culture, stands to reason that individual Spartan specimen was in fact better suited for warfare. Historian Xenophon once again notes that Spartans were in fact better suited physically for war. They were of course a wealthy caste and had a access to good food, shelter, overall well-being. Spartans enjoyed sport hunting, athleticism contributing greatly to the overall physical agility and body strength. However, this argument can also be countered by the fact that large number of helots too were often conscripted. As such, the slave class would balance out the healthy physicality of the wealthy Spartan. Uh, Spartiates. Slaves were often kept in check by withholding food, they were overworked and subjugated to corporal punishment. Stands the reason, therefore, that overall the Spartan army would have been more balanced in terms of brute strength and health. Now, due to the fact that Sparta was essentially built on the backs of slaves, sound familiar America? And ruled by a diminutive upper class, there was always this lingering possibility that widespread revolt would occur. In its infancy, Spartan in its infancy, Sparta withstood a series of violent slave revolts by the helots that served as a transformative event that would eventually galvanize the laws that would distinguish Sparta from other city-states. For instance, revolts spurred the idea of a centralized military state where uprisings could be crushed and expansion pursued at will. This became one of the central tenets. In doing so, the uh, other societal pursuits fell by the wayside namely the arts and literature. However, a common misconception about Spartan culture is that it was culturally barren. There were, however, instances of warrior poets such as Tyrtaeus. Tyrtaeus served as a uh, state poet. He chronicled events during the Second Mycenaean War in which he urged Spartans to not fear fighting to their deaths. So, yes, the arts and literature were present. They were just uh, distinctly martial, a little propagandic if you will. The full military reorientation of Spartan society is largely credited to a figure known as Lycurgus. As it was in these cases, it is not certain whether or not Lycurgus was a historical figure or a hodgepodge of many different people. Either way, it's thought that he was a prominent Spartan lawmaker who, who instituted militaristic and communistic reforms outlined in the Great Retra, the name given to what was essentially the Spartan Constitution. This set of laws were in line with the three Spartan virtues, which were equality <laughs> among citizens only, 
military fitness, and austerity. <laughs> Fun. One of the most enduring facts, quote unquote facts, floated around in regard to Spartan society is the treatment of their infants. There's an idea that infants were that were deemed unworthy were catapulted into gorges where they would, of course, you know, fall to their death. This idea is very vague. Like, what what would be the criteria that an infant would possibly not espouse? Like, what's <laughs> what is this baby doing that you don't approve of? Now, this legend comes from one passage in a book by Plutarch. Heard of him? The Life of Lycurgus. This book was actually an account of the lawmaker Lycurgus's exploits. And the quote goes: "Offspring was not reared at the at the will of the father, but was." taken and carried to but was taken and carried by him to a place called Lesh where the elders of the tribes officially examined the infant and if it was well built and sturdy they ordered the father to rear it and assigned it to one of the 9,000 lots of land but if it was ill-born and deformed they sent it to the so-called apothetai literally uh which is the cast off place a chasm like place at the foot of mount tigetos in the conviction that the life of that which nature had not well equipped at the very beginning for health and strength was no advantage either to itself or the state now whether or not the spartans did in Indeed, practice eugenics is still up for debate. This passage and source material is not firmly rooted in fact, and it was compiled in the 2nd century CE, five centuries after the Spartan culture fell out of relevance. What's more, brutal Spartan traditions, uh, when it came to their child rearing, got even more distorted through time. Some historians, some historians say that Spartan families would actually leave newborns overnight on the slopes of the Tigatus Mountains. Uh, if the infant survived, it would be deemed worthy of rearing. Other stories deduce that infants were not killed outright, but placed in protective baskets or vases to give them standing chance of being found by other people before animals or elements got to them. Either way, pretty brutal. Now, structural infanticide would uh, certainly fit the model of rigid society that demanded physical perfection from its citizens, being that military prowess was the highest state of being. However, it is more likely that these tall tales stem from the glorification of Spartan way of life by later Greek and Roman authors and tradition of overinflation that will persist into the a tradition of overinflation that will persist into the 21st century so now folks this brings us to the battle you've all been waiting for the battle of thermopylae and no that's not the name of the new patagonia jacket that's the battle that inspired the plot of the movie 300 the movie 300 which came out in 2006 and is based on a comic book or graphic novel i guess is more apt by frank miller frank miller is very famous in uh the graphic novel sphere the movie is highly stylized and definitely falls into the historical fiction category as i mentioned before and i want to take a second to discuss this this a little further because I, as i mentioned earlier you know people like to latch on to 300 as being this work of oh this is how like <laughs> you're you're gonna sit there and tell me that this is how they did no dude this is a comic book adapted into a movie and if you think that it's historically accurate then you need to read more books i guess i don't know what to tell you like and the the weirder part is that people who don't know that it's based off of a uh, a graphic novel or comic book whatever you want to describe it as people that don't they'll see the the instances in the movie where they have like monster guys with like blades for arms and like these demonic looking elephants and like all these things and you got to remember the plot of the movie it starts out a guy telling a story right he's telling a story about leonidas and his 300 spartans and the narrator at the very end comes full circle and is preparing he's giving a speech because he was there he's in he was in the battle or the initial battle and then he got his eye cut out or something like that and they sent him home to get more soldiers because they knew it was going to be futile and even if you take away that it is based on a comic book I want you to, if you ever watch this movie again, look at it through this lens because this is how I interpreted it and I don't know if everybody has done so. But the guy telling the story is give, relaying information that he witnessed and things that he had maybe not seen before. Elephants, rhinos, crazy guys with swords for hands, like giants in the battlefield. And he, <laughs> A, he's probably got some PTSD. 
B, he is trying to inspire these guys and he's telling these stories like they had all these crazy monsters and it still didn't work because we had 300 Spartans and now we have however many, whatever. So do yourself a favor. Next time you watch that movie, think about it in a little more of like a, well, he's never seen these things. He's trying to describe it and that's why these images because it's all his recollection. It's not, it's not him. Uh, it's not a documentary following King Leonidas. It's this guy telling the story later on. So anyway, off my soapbox on that. The actual Battle of Thermopylae. In 480 BCE, the Persian Empire under Xerxes I was advancing on Greece. An alliance of Greek city-states spearheaded by Sparta under King Leonidas I was staving off the impending invasion. The crux of the Greco-Persian conflict was fought over seven days at the Pass of Thermopylae, where a contingent of uh, 300 Spartans as well as 700 Thespians blocked the road that would uh, that went through the pass in order to protect the retreating Greek army. Of those seven days, three of them were spent in direct battle. In addition to the 700 Thespians, it is reported that 900 Helots and 400 Thebians were part of the contingent that stayed behind to protect the retreating Greek army. The advancing Persians were alerted by a traitor Ephialtes of the secret passage, allowing them to outflank the steadfast Greek ally. The Battle of Thermopylae has greatly romanticized, pitting Three, uh, Leonidas's diminutive force of 300 Spartans against the inflated numbers of the Persian infantrymen sometimes ballooned up to the millions by ancient authors. However, modern historians place the number of Persian fighters at around 120 to 300,000 soldiers, which is still a lot. As for the Spartans, well, first off, they weren't all Spartans. As we touched upon earlier, Leonidas marched to meet the Persians at the pass with nearly uh, 7,000 men from Greek city-states, the various Greek city-states, as he realized that the uh, Persians had found another passage through the mountains that were outflanking him, who were a bulk of his army to retreat. A group of at least a thousand Spartans and Thespians remained to protect the retreating forces. However, it is believed that around 900 helots were also forced to remain in addition to the 400 Thebans that I mentioned before. As it were, all the soldiers, save for the helots, who had no real allegiance to the cause, fought and to the death. Now this part was real and no doubt contributed to the romanticized portrayal of the singular battle. However, the Spartans were ultimately crushed at Thermopylae and Athens subsequently sacked by the Persians. In a cinematic callback to the old Athens versus, versus Sparta beef, it was ultimately Athens' defeat of the Persian naval fleet at Salamis, a battle that uh, was being waged concurrently with the siege of Thermopylae that solidified the Persian defeat for Greece. If you've seen, <laughs> again, calling back to the actual movie because I think it's just easier just to visualize because it is on screen. But in the movie 300, you can, I think even the second 300 is about this, the, I, I don't know. I have, it's been a long time since I watched the second one, that's for sure. Um, anyway, I'm pretty sure it depicts the Athenian Navy and the Persian Navy. Anyway, conversely, the fact that Spartans were put in charge of the military aspect of the coalition of Greek city-states against the Persian threat must have carried its weight through history. Uh, must have carried its weight through history and helped cement the excellency of Spartan military uh, tactics and you know elevated them to this thing. <laughs> now, the value system espoused by Sparta in popular culture would have Spartans be warriors who had no fear of death and readily forged into battle. However, source material by notable historian Herodotus, the quote-unquote father of history, would suggest a different and less altruistic reason behind this feat. Herodotus suggests that Spartans routinely favored death in battle because toxic shame was tied to any hint of cowardice back home. In his chronicling of the Battle of Thermopylae, Herodotus recounts the story of a uh, messenger named, named Pantides, who by no fault of his own was delivering a message when the final battle took place. Having thus survived the ordeal by mistake, Pantides returned to Sparta. He hung himself shortly thereafter as he was shamed ruthlessly for and heavily for reluctant survival. Pantides' death uh, by suicide is one of the three examples given by Herodotus showcasing the fear of shame outweighed by the fear of death for Spartan military men. Now, as touched upon earlier, Sparta favored some of the more rigid elements of societal life, military structure, physical health, and overall austerity. In contrast, other city-states favored the arts and literature. This is best exemplified by the city-state of Athens, where temples were erected as a testament to the distinct style that was being cultivated by the Athenian architects and artists at the time. These works acted as a larger-than-life uh, tributes to their ideal of beauty and perfection, their communion with the world and the 
their communion with the world around them and representations of how Athenians saw themselves as part of it. Athenian style is referred to as classical. Another contrasting element between the two city-states can be found in their politics. Athens was set up as a true democracy where various different members of the populace could participate in political life. In contrast, of course, we know the Spartans was distinctly more elitist. The, uh, the double monarchy slash oligarchy combo kind of gives it away just to, just a little bit. Now, within Sparta, there is this idea that Spartans were single-minded and that they were war-obsessed and no one would ever dare engage them in battle. This is perhaps due to the fact that Athens did indeed always avoid engaging in direct combat with Sparta during their prolonged conflict known as the Peloponnesian War, which was waged between 431 and 404 BCE. The reason for this, however, is multi-layered. The fact is, neither Athens nor Sparta possessed enough military advantage to overtake the other, so there's a little bit of cold war going on. This is this is exemplified by the fact that they engaged in sporadic warfare for many decades. In fact, the history in fact, the historian Thucydides, who chronicled the first 20 years of the war, placed the origin of the conflict as Sparta's insecurity about Athens' perceived rise to greatness. Thucydides, it should be noted here, was also an Athenian general, so this could have just been a prolonged humble brag as told by the annals of time. However, it should be noted that Thucydides is widely known as the first historian he referred to his recounting of the Peloponnesian War as being a possession for all time characterized by impartiality and evidence gathering. Interestingly, Thucydides did not focus on what he perceived as extraneous information in his recounting of the war, which was essentially any mention of arts and culture, citing that he was, quote, recording an event, not a period. This could also contribute to the notion that Sparta was not focused on such extraneous things themselves, i.e. not for a lack of it per se, but simply a lack of documentation. Thucydides is very interesting, and uh, there was a quote that until recently, I thought that he had said, and I am sad that I found out that it was not him that had said it. So the quote is often credited to him, stating, quote, the nation that will insist on drawing a broad line of demarcation between the fighting man and the thinking man is liable to find its fighting done by fools and its thinking done by cowards. Great quote, kind of honestly fits Thucydides, especially when you think about the Peloponnesian War and Sparta and Athens, right? Like you can kind of attribute <laughs> those aspects of that quote. Um, but it's actually incorrectly attributed and is supposed to be attributed to a British author, uh, British author from the 19th century, so or 20th century. So that's annoying. Anyway, it appears that Athens inferred that. Uh, anyway, it appears that Athens inferred a uh, math. Either way, anyway, it appears that Athens interfered in matters between Corinth and a Spartan ally and one of its colonies, Corsera. Sparta, as it were, declared for war first, <laughs> naturally. This fact added to its warmongering aura. What's more, Sparta possessed a bigger army and its soldiers were said to have been of a higher overall caliber, and as we touched upon earlier. However, Athens had more resources and was able to consolidate its power by asserting a steady stream of supplies coming its way through a port at, at Piraeus, maintaining its army as well as naval fleet and keeping them both well fed. Connecting the ports at Piraeus at, uh, to the city center of Athens. Athens, the so-called, quote, long walls, assured that Athenians were protected. As an added strategy, rural populations were coaxed by Athenian leader Pericles to relocate within those boundaries temporarily, thus fortifying their ranks and assuring their protection. So to recap, yes, Sparta had an army that was more formidable in size and quality, and Athens did use a strategy that involved a more or less, quote, waiting it out within the long walls. But this is not because Sparta was unbeatable on the battlefield. Field. As stated, both armies were on par with each other, with neither possessing the capacity to overtake the other outright. In the end, Sparta would win the Peloponnesian Wars, because there were two, uh, and secure hegemony for itself in the early 4th century BCE. Sparta was also able to secure dominance by forming strategic and beneficial alliances. It was at the helm of the Peloponnesian League when it overcame the Delian League, led by Athens. The Peloponnesian League included the likes of Corinth, Megara, Tegea, 
and Ellis, to name a few. But overall, Sparta wasn't cleaning it up when it come to, uh, came to battles itself. Here's a list of a few of the many times on record that Sparta took an L, as the youths would say. One notable moment... <laughs> One of these notable moments is the Battle of Arginusae. In 406 BCE, the Spartan fleet off the coast of Lesbos was alerted to the presence of their age-old frenemy, the Athenians, in nearby waters. Callicratidas, a Spartan naval commander, ordered 120 ships to meet his enemy in the strait by the Arginusae Islands. The Athenian fleet, for their part, are said to have been enjoying dinner as the Spartans approached. Callicratidas is said to have attempted a surprise attack but was thwarted by a surprise storm instead <laughs> his efforts were foiled by mother nature maybe this guy's part mongolian the following morning the athenian fleet none the wiser assembled itself in a typical battle formation war's weird you gotta go to bed and wake up and then get into formation like you just you slept on a boat all day or all night now you wake up and you're like all right let's move these boats we're gonna fight these dudes <laughs> they placed a single row of ships in the center of their fleet with the Arganusai islands at their back the athenians also added one row of ships to each on each flank and placed a second row between each gap uh, between ships the goal was to block off two well-used maneuvers by the Spartans, the Daikplus, where one ship would uh, sail between opposing ships and turn to attack their sterns, and the Periplus, which was when a ship encircled the enemy by sailing around them. This strategy proved successful as the uh, rows on each flanks were engaged in battle with the center rows being used as reserves. Spartans took heavy losses that day as 77 ships were drowned with the Athenians only withstood the loss of 25 of their vessels. In 425 BCE, two battles were raged as part of the Greater Peloponnesian War. The Sphacteria and Pylos conflicts were abject failures for the Spartans and highlighted their potential vulnerability as a state. During winter of that year, Athenian commander, Athenian commander Demosthenes took note of a point in the southwest Peloponnese called Pylos. This area could easily be fortified and serve as a base, he theorized, for regional raids. The region, Messenia, was generally unsympathetic towards Spartans in general. You'll recall that Sparta forcibly annexed folks from Messenia and relegated them to the state slave helot class, so understandable why they would not be super pumped about them. By landing at Pylos, Demosthenes presented the Athenian horde as saviors, and this facilitated the ambitions at play. Now, let's just take a minute here to highlight just how the Spartan modus operandi of terrorizing locals and essentially engulfing them into servitude ultimately came back to bite them in the ass. I mean, it's <laughs> just weird if you're kidnapping the children and like men of a nation nearby you and then your other enemy comes in and goes hey man we don't like them either like that's <laughs> that's just a recipe for disaster to meet the athenians at pylos the spartans sent a fleet which was stationed at nearby island of sphacteria this island served as a Spartan base. As such, many of their top brass were posted here. When the Spartan fleet was ultimately defeated on the water, up to 292 of their elite Spartiates were left marooned and imprisoned on this island. As such, the pressure was turned on. Sparta volunteered a truce in order to save its elite. Again, this exposed a vulnerability in its social structure because it favored the elite and the elite were rewarded with politicking and warfare. Losing a chunk of its elite in one fell swoop would prove damaging uh, to the fabric of Sparta's very nationhood. Ultimately, the Athenian statesman Cleon rejected the truce offer and the war raged on, but Sparta had made another mistake. It showed its hand and revealed just how eager it could be to betray its allies and how soft its underbelly could be when its elite were in jeopardy. If anything, the defeat at Pylos showcases how overall Sparta was not legendary or military savvy as the annals of popular culture would have us believe. One thing that has been overly associated with Spartan culture, even though it was something that has been recorded in other Greek city-states, is the concept of institutionalized pederasty. Now, there's no consensus among modern historians, but Paul Cartledge, a researcher of Spartan civilization at the University of Cambridge, leading the charge on this theory, states that in Spartan culture, there was what he calls an association between older men, Orastes, 
and younger Ben Aromanos. He notes this uncertainty about any sexual aspects being tied to the institution, but does not deny that it is not unreasonable to assume that this took place. The certainty of these associations is lost to history, I'm afraid, but it stands to reason that given human nature, exercising such power dynamics certainly must have resulted in such act. Either way, the idea of pederasty is not unique to Spartan culture, with depictions of sexual acts between men and boys being found on artworks in Athens and Crete as well. But this also, you know, throws into the mix that, hey, <laughs> the Spartans, especially in um, popular culture, they like, oh, they're, they're, these, these macho men, they don't do that boy loving that the Athen Athenians do, but it turns out. Turns out they were just as guilty. So, not a good look, ancient Greece. You're canceled. Uh, <laughs> anyway, like many empires, Sparta eventually fell. It dominated the other Greek city-states as leader of the charge during the Greco-Persian conflicts and had secured a hegemony of a hegemony in the early 4th century for itself during the Peloponnesian Wars as it ultimately overtook Athens, if only for a short, short while. In the end, Sparta was engulfed as an ally of the over-expanded ever-expanding uh, Roman Empire and its aura was left for us to parse together through the eyes of ancient historians, many of which were unapologetic fanboys of the military city-state. Indeed, it appears that Sparta's intoxicating quality was one for the ages. In the end, part of Sparta's downfall was due to the fact that it often overlooked a core component of its societal structure. The people that it overtook and dominated outnumbered the Spartan military, formidable as it was. Ultimately, Sparta was overtaken by Thebes, a city-state that had a greater population than Sparta. A Spartan general, Svodryas, launched an attack against Piraeus in order to galvanize its control over Thebes, which was bubbling over with revolt. The attack ultimately failed, and Thebes and Athens began discussing the possibility of an alliance, which ultimately contributed to the downfall of Sparta. Svodryas for his part, was tried in Sparta for his failed attack. As Thebes grew in power, Athens shifted its alliance and folded it onto the side of Sparta, but as it were, it was too little too late. There's a new bully in the playground. The Battle of Leuctra was the uh, end for the Spartan for Sparta as they had stretched themselves too thin with blind military dominance. They were ultimately crushed by Thebes. As Greek city-states battled for hegemony during the 4th century, Sparta was leading the helm, having retained power for the better part of uh, better part of centuries as unchecked military authority. This would all crumble into the dust at the Battle of Leuctra, fought in 371 BCE near the Battle of or near the, near the village of Leuctra in in the Boeotia region of Greece. This battle saw Sparta forfeit its dominance due to a bout of shoddy warmongering. Thebes had embarked on a path of military reform that led to creation of the Sacred Band, which amounted to an elite fighting force. As a city-state, they were on their way to uh, usurping power from Sparta, and Leuctra was a natural place to duke it out. Control over the Boeotia would have uh, held significant strategic advantage for both parties involved. The Spartan force at Leuctra was led by King Cleombrotus. As it had for centuries, Spartan military tactic favored in this conflict was the hoplite phalanx, and Leuctra's assemblage uh, was no uh, exemption. On the day that the battle was waged, tradition was maintained, and the phalanx stood tall and proud, a display of rigidity and discipline. As it were, the phalanx's elite Spartiates were located on the formation's right wings. For their part, the Theban military used an innovative technique at Leuctra in an effort to break the Spartans' ranks. The sacred band, composed of 150 pairs of men, used a unique formation with a strengthened left wing. The idea was that the Theban rank, smaller, aiming at the weakened left side of the Spartan phalanx, would use its elite force to break their ranks while the bulk of the of its force stood behind ready to clean up. The calculated yet risky strategy upheld by Epinemon, Epaminondas whew, that's, these Greek names are impossible to say <laughs> uh, a visionary leader and warrior paid off Spartan ranks were broken, leading confusion and disarray uh, for the ferociously organized militia. Also, in the melee, King Cleombrotus perished, which led to a feedback loop of demoralization that no doubt contributed to the eventual defeat of the Spartan army. 400 Spartiates lost their lives that day. What's more, since so many of these men were social elites, their death left huge holes in the political fabric of Spartan society, which was plagued with turmoil and could simply not 
readjust itself following those losses. Sparta's defeat at Leuctra showcases how rigid how rigidity can also translate to lack of resilience or adaptability in taking a risk and thinking strategically. Epim <laughs> Epaminondas was able to defeat the Spartan army. This is also because in honing their technique to the unteamed degree, Sparta had perhaps lost sight of the downside of having a quote-unquote perfected strategy, which is predictability. The defeat at Leuctra was proverbial Jenga piece that sent the towering dominance of Sparta to a crumbling rubble. They were forever undermined as a military power and never recovered. Spartan military supremacy has been questioned as an academic exercise in recent years, especially because it has been co-opted by the far right. Sci-fi author Mike Cole delved into military history in the book The Bronze Lie, which explores the myth of ancient Sparta through a, a skeptical lens. Of the Spartans, he says, they were cowards, just like we are. They were greedy, just like we are. They showed fear, just like we do. They lost, just like we do. And they also were capable of heroics and great things. I think flawed humans are so much easier to connect with and take inspiration from than this crazy idea of mythical super warriors, which nobody ever was, let alone the Spartans. I feel like you can probably pick that quote and apply it to just about any over-fantastical, like, mythologized group you can apply that to the samurai that we discussed before you can apply it to the vikings which are i think the current rendition of the spartans like in the 2000 2000s from 2000 2010 spartans dominated popular culture like i said and i think you could apply that quote to just about anything um, that latches on i don't know if the roman empire is taking off again because people are talking about it because of like the tiktok trend or whatever but you could apply that to them too. Spartan culture has been adopted by the warrior society ethos of the of some elements of Americana. Think of the initial formation during a football game. It's a little phalanxy, right? You have your offensive defensive linemen. You have this flat line that is protecting your guy launching stuff. You know, the, the phalanx often stood in front of your projectile forces. The winged Corinthian helmet of a Spartan warrior is often allocated by sports teams in the United States. Think of <laughs> think of Michigan State, the Spartans. Uh, I think it's San Diego State also have a it's either San Diego or San Jose, one of the two. They have a Spartan helmet. There's a lot of sports teams like to use that imagery, that icon. That helmet is so powerful for, like, imagery, I guess. Spartan military culture has been glorified and ballooned up in pop culture with elements of this righteous die-for-the-cause mentality even skewing heavily towards the some fewer desirable elements of patriotism. Yes, you guessed it. Uh, Godwin's Law is at play here too because now we uh, get to talk about Nazis. <laughs> in order to bolster its ideology, the Nazi Party of Germany held itself up by the jankiest of conceptual scaffolding. Known to borrow from various credos, Nazism uh, attempted to fold itself into larger historical framework. This is demonstrated by its borrowing of Norse mythology as well as dabbling into occultism. But the Nazi party was also uh, interested in long-surviving ideas surrounding Sparta. In fact, a lot of the right-wing identity politics folds into some manufactured ideals about Spartan culture, namely their blind bravery, righteousness, and unparalleled paralleled military skill. Nazi children were wrongly taught that ancient Spartans were actually an Aryan tribe. What's more, the inflated racial and martial ideologies of Spartan of Sparta were retrofitted to justify the corrupt ideals of the Third Reich. Cool, 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 yeah, awesome. Academics sometimes call Sparta's cultural influence the quote-unquote Spartan mirage. This is because this culture has evoked a lot of dissonance and has left a vestigial element of mystery that adds to the mythos. Many historians, philosophers, writers, and attempting to write about Sparta find themselves grappling with a society that is hard to pin down. French philosopher Jean-Jacques Rousseau, who attempted to write the history of Sparta stated, The greatest inconvenience associated with my endeavor is that here one sees men who resemble us almost in nothing, who seem to us to be outside of nature, perhaps much because we are in that state ourselves as because they are in fact there. Their crimes inspire us in horror, sometimes their virtues themselves make us shiver, because we are weak and pusillanimous in good times and in bad. Everything that bears a certain character of force and vigor seems to us impossible. The incredulity that we parade is the work of our cowardice rather than that of our reason. 
One thing that can be said about Sparta is that the regime seemed to understand that extensive grandstanding storytelling, veil of secrecy, and their expulsion of the other kept the mirage working. Spartans were notorious in the disdain of foreigners. There are many accounts of them not accepting travelers within city walls, thus the aura of mystery maintained, at least for some part of history. In many ways, it also appears though as though Spartans understood the value of good marketing or quote P.T. Barnum, there's no such thing as bad publicity. In other words, even in the words of historian Herodotus, Spartans were a slippery bunch and that worked in their favor. I'm obviously paraphrasing, although how cool would it be if Herodotus did just say Spartans were slippery? That would be amazing. <laughs> he did also infer that Spartans more or less said one thing and did another entirely, which added to the mental fog around the mysterious city-state with its austere population. Recently, it has been suggested that the Spartan mirage extended to cultural criticism and even academia itself, with the idea that Spartan culture and its subsequent inflation and critique serve as a mirror of the bourgeoisie, or as academic Paul A. Wright says, uh, states, a morality supportive of our own way of life. Spartans, that's the episode. I hope you all learned something valuable. I hope this was helpful in dispelling some of the major myths of these ancient people. Now you can go to one of those Spartan races and wait outside the finish line and go, <laughs> well, actually, and uh, hopefully impress all of them. Probably, probably get a medal, honestly. <laughs> I really think this was a fun episode to do, and I always wanted to do something similar to this with a bunch of different ones. I mean, we kind of did it with the samurai, but that was just kind of just talking about them. I really didn't do a whole lot of myth-busting with them because, I don't know, I, I just wasn't thinking in that level. I thought maybe just going straight at just describing what they were was probably the best way to go. So for this one, where it is such a pop culture zeitgeisty kind of thing, I, I felt like bringing it in terms of this is... A thing people have a limited understanding of and the understanding that they do have is largely myth-based um i hope that taking it from that angle was appropriate and i thought i hope that you enjoyed that some other ones that i want to do eventually is definitely the uh the Norse, the Vikings, I think. I did a little bit of that in the Pirates episode, but I think a full episode on them, because that is, like I said earlier, that is the the new version of what the Spartans were, because it seemed in the 2000s, you know, from early 2000s to t the 2010s, like, Spartans were the thing. Like, you had, um, granted, there's, like, sports teams that have had the Spartans as their logos and their uh, mascots for a long time before that but I'm talking video games movies TV shows like all of these things were kind of steamrolling our collective unconscious about what the Spartans were and I think that Vikings are the current rendition of that because go to go to Netflix and type in Vikings and see how many shows you find there are some shows that do it very well there are some shows that you know fudge the numbers so to speak there are video games as mentioned I mentioned the Assassin's Creed games they have <laughs> they have ancient Greece and they have Vikings, right? Um, you know, and it extends into other franchises, other things. I mean, don't get me wrong, as a fan of history, I I appreciate all of it, and it's like, okay, well, if that dips people's toes into it, that's great. I love that aspect of it, but I think that there is a large disconnect from where people go from, oh, I enjoyed this video game or this movie, and then they just assume that it's facts, or they don't care to look into anything further they don't care to try and figure out what the truth of it is because sometimes fiction you know it's a little more it's sexier than the facts are sometimes and that clouds our judgment that can make us feel one way or the other about certain things <laughs> like i don't know it just it just seems like that's that's the way people would it's easier to do that right it's easier just to assume like yeah this is accurate you i see a lot of um still to this day i see a lot of like spartan or even ancient greek like just related um tattoos or you know profile pictures this is like a spartan helmet or leonidas or something i'm like okay all right man you know i, I do a lot of off-the-cuff judgment on that but you know this is not this is not the podcast for that anyway i hope you enjoyed this i really did find everything 
fascinating because I think I think that I am not uh, immune to some of the mythologizing that media can put out in some of the historical things and I like these episodes where I'm able to kind of break away my former you know preconceived notions and explain it and I think doing these shows also helps me explain things and um or not, not helps me explain, but helps me learn things better, because if you're teaching people stuff, you learn it better, too. So, anyway, that's it uh, for this week. Hopefully, hopefully uh, nobody's I- made their entire identity on the Spartan ideology, and if you do, I guess maybe don't have slaves and (laughs) and don't uh here's the big thing one of the things that i thought was important is like towards the end towards the fall of the spartan how they just assumed that having so many of their like important people in these battles like just the overall stretching your your country your political system and your army so thin where you're like it'll be fine i'll just (laughs) i'll just uh you know we'll just figure it out if all of our aristocrats die you know and we'll just assume that we can just keep moving on that's a very silly way to do that but anyway thank you for joining me uh don't forget to share us wherever you uh are taking this in or wherever you hang out on the internet or even in person you work with somebody and maybe they have maybe they have a sticker from they've ran a spartan race or something like hey dude you're into like you did a spartan race. you want to learn more about spartans check out this podcast it doesn't have to be much i don't ask for a lot i am doing this out of my own self-interest i enjoy this i enjoy teaching people most of the people that listen are my friends personally and that's cool but i would like you know i would like to teach more people i've (laughs) innately i just want to be that person that is telling people random facts that they don't need to know but they do now so you're welcome yeah uh check out all of our friends podcasts all my uh in the description towards the very end of the description is all our friends podcast my other show west of nowhere is in there you can check that out if you want you know i held back a little bit on like my political stances on this show but if you want to hear me discuss those things i do sometimes on that show pretty interesting um if you like news i guess otherwise there's a lot of really sad news that we talk about and just trying to make sense of the world and then the real creature feature my friend Mac, and then David and Sarah with the Macabre Emporium. And I think, is there one other? I don't think there's another one. Anyway, check those out. Check all of this out. Like and subscribe. Do all the things. And um, yeah, and I will see you next time. Bye.